majestic thing, even at the most that one could say. And how blessed as we are to consider that tonight. It's interesting that the songs that we've sung, as well as the thoughts that uttered between all of us amongst prayer, pointed our attention to the very lesson that we'll consider tonight. So I appreciate Brother Harold in choosing those songs and also the prayer in which Brother Lester led us in that. And the announcements as well even turned our attention to thinking about the subject that we'll consider tonight. That is the very subject of prayer. Isn't it interesting that throughout the sacred scriptures, all 66 books, direct our mind to realize that there is indeed a great and almighty and awesome God in heaven, and that that God has revealed himself to his human creatures. For one thing, he did that by virtue of the character of his creation. In Romans 1 verse 20, to that church in Rome, Paul very boldly and very assertively said, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, so that they are without excuse. Isn't it interesting then that surely as we look about us and see the handiwork of God, we can recognize his existence and appreciate the greatness of him, but we also realize he has revealed himself most especially and most directly in the form of his written word, the Holy Scriptures. As we turn our attention to that, don't we also see he has spoken so very much about prayer? He has revealed so many things about it. And in as much as you think about that, it's also to be noted that many sermons, many lessons, many thoughts could be revealed. Tonight, our only focus really will be a simple consideration of its importance. To firmly understand, to better appreciate the place that prayer should play in my life and yours, and if we can accomplish that tonight, we will have come a great distance and we'll have broached one of the greatest subjects in all of the Word of God. The very subject and the very subject, namely that being of prayer. Might we begin this lesson by noting there are many in our world who do not have the proper perspective as it relates to God. It's likely then not a shock that their prayers are such that they don't pray at all, or if they do pray, it is not in a proper fashion. But it's also quickly to be observed that even you and I, as those who do appreciate God's greatness, and those who do recognize the inspired nature of His Word, and those who are appreciative of all the awesomeness of Him, even we can be guilty of failing to appreciate the greatness of prayer, the importance of prayer, and the place of prayer. And so tonight, as we each think about that subject, it gives us opportunity to recollect and reflect upon the very nature of prayer and the place it should hold in my life and in yours. The lesson, as I've divided it, will be into three parts. The first section, we will take a view of the typical life in 21st century America, a view that in many ways is, is not all that comforting. But then in the second part of the lesson, let us reflect on the nature of life as it was in ancient days and begin to see something very, very interesting. And then for the last part of the lesson, let's draw four applications from that to aid us in our daily walk with God in prayer. As we begin that, what about life in 21st century America? What is about to be said is not intended to turn your mind away from those things we'd like to turn it to during the service tonight, but it is a recognition of the type world in which you and I live and the type circumstances that we are called upon to face. 
Modern life presents demands, and don't you and I know it. We recognize the demands that are heaped upon our shoulders on the workplace. It may well be that that boss or that manager to whom we directly confront and the one to whom we directly serve beneath is such that there is a certain production and it must be met. There are tasks and the phone rings constantly and we realize that that burden and that labor that is upon us seems to go in full force from the time we arrive until the time the workday is done. All the while we understand those demands and duties and responsibilities are ours and it seems with each passing year more is asked, overtime is often strongly encouraged, and it seems as though we're pulled two days from tomorrow as we think about the nature of what needs to be done and the time that's given to do it. Even to those who in fact work on the farm or even in the household, their tasks too are varied in many. So many things to be accomplished in seemingly so little time to do it. We understand the demands of the family are also great. As soon as we perhaps get up in the morning, our feet must start rolling and running to try and get the kids ready for school and the things prepared for ourselves as we go to work. As soon as the workday is finished, it's time then to aid the children with their homework and to take them to their activities, be they ball games or other club activities. Sometimes even in the community, those parent-teacher organizations meet and we're expected to participate. We realize with all that being said that the demands again seem to be great, but we haven't yet said much about the things at home. The meals need to be prepared and the laundry needs to be finished. The other things like the cars need to be taken care of and fixed. The house needs to be winterized. You see where this is headed. As one thinks about the demands, they can seem overwhelming. They can seem to be where they push and shove other things out of life to make room for them. Isn't it maybe fair to say that as we think about all of that, the demands at work, the demands in the family, and plus our responsibilities to our Heavenly Father, we certainly wish never to forsake them. But when we do consider all these other demands, isn't it fair to say Little time appears to be left, and the situation in which you and I find ourselves may well be nothing but plain exhausted by the time everything else is done. It's easy then to see that sometimes we might be guilty of neglecting some of those duties to our Heavenly Father, such as the study of His Word. We may allow that to pass by so that we can accomplish everything else. Perhaps that'll be a lesson for another time, but one other thing we can allow to pass and one other thing we may be tempted to forsake is the time to be devoted to prayer. Maybe over the course of that day, we simply allow a day to pass or a few to pass without turning to our Heavenly Father in prayer while we're so busily pursuing these other matters, the demands wherever they may fall. Well, maybe we should tonight think about that in light of the passage that was read before us earlier. The scene that I've just described is this scene that in fact is modern life and we understand that. What I've said is nothing new to any of us. But we may be tempted to think that this is 21st century America. We may think that a hundred years ago it just wasn't like this. That they then had a greater degree of flexibility in their schedule and the pressures weren't so great and there was a more conducive atmosphere to Bible study and prayer. And if we turn the clock back another 19 centuries, 
We may think that in the day of our Lord, nothing like this ever would have happened. There, people didn't have the technological advances of today, and there wasn't the pressures and demands. But before we accept that, maybe we should study Mark chapter 1. And to that chapter, I would ask you, turn with me as we look at a day in the life of our Lord. As we study one day in the life of Jesus, let us recognize that what is described there will be not only interesting, but very telling in terms of the type day he had and what that might mean for you and for me. In Mark chapter 1, we recall that the book of Mark did not place great emphasis upon the very first episodes in the life of our Savior, but rather in chapter 1, that inspired writer Mark simply drew our attention to the opening statements of his ministry. When we come to verse 21, we notice that from that verse until the close of the chapter is a description of one day in the life of our Lord. The thrust and the power and the various events that took place often are described by various statements that indicate the time of day and other things that occurred. We'll not take the time to read the entirety from verse 21 onward, but I do want you to note some of the highlights of some of the things that occurred in this day. First of all, in verse 21, apparently fairly early in the morning, Jesus and his disciples entered on the Sabbath day into the synagogue, and there the blessed Savior began to teach. He taught in a powerful and remarkable way, so much so that the audience was astonished. Jesus taught them having great authority. And as he taught, he wasn't like the scribes were, who relied upon human tradition and human perspective. The people appreciated that power behind his teaching and they were astonished at it. In the aftermath of that astonishment, one of the individuals present on the occasion of that synagogue gathering was a person who was beset with an unclean spirit. This unclean spirit recognized the Savior and in fact confessed as much and pleaded with him not in fact to torment him. Jesus, though, in listening to the statements of that demon within that man, not only commanded him to be quiet, if you will, but fairly much cast him out as well, and this man was whole. One more time, the people were amazed. They simply were beside themselves seeing the power in this man named Jesus. This occurred in the city of Capernaum, a fairly sizable city the ancient day, nestled there at the northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee. This city was the very place in which Peter and Andrew and James and John and some others had their fishing work. We can already see that Jesus has taught and accomplished much already, but we've just begun. After the scene at the synagogue was finished, Jesus and the others left that place and went to the house of Peter. There they discovered and found that Peter's mother-in-law was sick. In fact, apparently that with a fever, and Jesus proceeded to heal her, taking that fever away, she proceeded to minister to them. After that healing, and after the scene on the occasion of being in that home of Peter, notice what occurred next. Please note the reading with me, especially in this verse. Let's notice verse number 32. And at even... When the sun did set, they brought unto him all that were diseased and then that were possessed with devils. If we remember that this took place on the Sabbath, 
the Jews were understanding of the fact that they were limited in the work that they should do in light of that Old Testament commandment. But once the even had come and the sun had set, that for them began the next day. And thus, there was no longer restriction. They came to Jesus in droves and in multitudes desiring and beseeching Him that He would heal the sick and those that were possessed with demons and those that were afflicted in any way. Thus, when you and I might very well think that when the setting of the sun and time to relax and kick back and rest... The Lord's work just increased in its fervor and increased in that which was demanded of Him. Here the people came again with the setting of the sun in large numbers. And in verse number 33, And all the city was gathered together at the door. And He healed many that were sick of divers diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew Him. Can you imagine a city the size of ancient Capernaum? And it was no small place. It was, in fact, a place where the Roman Empire had a garrison of soldiers, telling us it could not have been a small city. Thus, it says, all the city came together. Everyone that had any kind of ailment or oppression or sickness, they knew that there was one in the city who would be able to aid and who would be able to assist. Can you imagine one after another? No sooner had he healed one than another was waiting. How many hours that continued, we do not know. But we do know that our Savior was asked a great deal of him, one after another, to heal and to beseech them and to aid them in recovery. We can begin to see that Jesus had a busy day. Was that day any less busy than you or I may have today? Was it such that we can look upon that and say, well, there was little to do then? That would be an unfair statement, don't you think? Our Savior had every bit as busy a day as you and I would have, but all the while, given that busyness and given the demands upon Him and the responsibilities that He faced, it is still true that verse 35 is a remarkable statement in the Holy Word of God. Let us turn our attention to verse number 35 and recognize the statement therein found about prayer. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. Despite the fact that Jesus was busy, and despite the fact that demands were heaped upon his shoulders, and despite the fact that multitudes were desirous of his services, he did not forsake prayer. He did not forsake the thing that would keep him in closer communication with his heavenly Father. He did not turn his back on the attitude and privilege and prerogative of prayer. I submit to you there's a great deal you and I might learn just from thinking and applying the very lesson of that single verse. I've listed a few of the thoughts specifically about it. Let's retrace the specifics of verse 35. The text says, And in the morning rising up a great while before day. Literally in the Greek, the meaning is while it was still dark. Jesus made a special effort to rise before the distractions and interruptions of the day could disrupt his prayer while it was yet dark. Jesus rose and in that case made his way to where? A solitary place. The text is literally a wilderness area, a deserted place. He went off by himself. And there the text simply affirms for us that he entered into prayer. 
we can well appreciate why that may have been the place our Savior sought, the place of prayer. For after all, in verse 36, he wasn't alone for long. They still found him. We don't know how long he was able to engage in prayer uninterrupted, but quickly verse 36 and following says, All men seek for thee. The night had not ended the people's desire to have him heal and to have him take issue and place. They were amazed at his teaching, amazed at his healing abilities. The people still found him. But Jesus, early in the morning, in the peacefulness and stillness of the early morning hours, went to his heavenly Father in prayer. Might we notice then, as we think simply about that, some lessons that may be there to encourage you and me in our prayer life. We've seen what Jesus did. Let us think about what you and I may do. The first four lessons that I'd like to share tonight from this verse and from the Word of God are these. First of all, prayer is important. Though you and I may be tempted to forsake it as though it were perhaps trivial or less than completely important, we make a grave mistake if we so view it that way. For prayer really is important. Let's notice that conclusion based on this thought. Jesus prayed, and yet he was the all-powerful Son of God. As he walked upon this earth, we will recall that in the virgin birth, he was God in the flesh. Did we not read in Matthew 1, verse 23, the fact that even at the time of his birth, God with us, his name was called Emmanuel. The fact that he was God with us, God himself made statement of that fact not many verses earlier in this chapter. In Mark 1, verse 11, at the occasion of his baptism, God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Later in Colossians 1, 16, the inspired writer there, the Apostle Paul, made this incredible statement. He said that all the world was created by him and for him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's Jesus. He was the Son of God. You might think he wouldn't need prayer. You might think that he would really have no special occasion or need or in fact the occasion of his life to draw it such that he would have need for prayer. But that wasn't true. Even the Son of God prayed. And in fact, this was only one occasion among many. Perhaps we can think of it this way. If the Son of God, as powerful as he was, Powerful enough to still a storm with simply speaking to it in Mark 4.35. Powerful enough to raise a dead Lazarus in John 11. Powerful enough to speak this entire universe into existence. If he still needed prayer, what does that say about you and me, mere mortal sinful men and women? Do we not need prayer? And in fact, a lot of it. If Jesus found the time and made the time and considered it so important to pray. Oh, how that speaks to the fact it is important, and you and I must never forsake it. But the very fact that prayer is that important directly leads to the next point, that it must then be urgent. Jesus made that occasion and that time and those arrangements in his schedule to pray. It was that important to him. So much so then does that help us realize the urgency for you and me. Notice the urgency time and again spoken of with respect to prayer in the Scriptures. Both Old and New Testament alike, the urgency is such that we mustn't forsake it. On that occasion in Luke 18, beginning in verse 1, 
There Jesus told that parable that we will recognize, but the whole purpose of the parable, the whole lesson that he desired to share was this, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Jesus knew well that in the hecticness and frenzied way that men are often called upon to live, one of the things that's easy to inch and to crowd out of life is prayer. But Jesus said men should always pray and not faint. We ought not grow weary in prayer. We ought not grow tired in it. We ought not thus give up on it and fail to do it. Men ought always to pray. In that parable told on that occasion, Jesus spoke about that judge or that ruler that was somewhat wicked, wasn't he? And in fact, nonetheless, because of the woman's persistent asking and the fact she didn't grow weary in prayer, she finally was granted the thing that she asked. Jesus said, we need to be like that in prayer, to petition God and pray to Him fervently and earnestly and to not grow weary in prayer and certainly to not forsake it. Later to those Thessalonian brethren, one of the shortest verses in the English New Testament to the Thessalonians, Paul said, pray without ceasing. We are urged then to have a constant and persistent attitude of prayer, not that we are literally on our knees 24 hours a day, but rather that we frequently are always able and comfortable to go to our Heavenly Father and to lay upon Him the burdens that we're called upon to bear. It's a fair thing to say that one of the most foolish things that you and I do is to try and carry too much on our shoulders. The Son of God felt the necessity and urgency to go to His Father in prayer. Why don't we do that more often? and lay upon God what He wants to take care of anyway. But you and I attempt in our independence and in our strength to do it by ourselves, and usually we end up giving it to Him anyway because we can't do it. We are not wise like He, and we are not all-powerful like He. Jesus went out early in the morning, and there He found occasion to pray. As we see these passages that we've already seen then about praying without ceasing and the urgency that's laid upon us, we should see in that a beautiful privilege that's given to those that are Christ's. In fact, that leads us to the next point and the next idea. For it's certainly fair to say that if prayer were nothing more than a usage of time and nothing more than something to consume a few minutes out of a day or out of a week, prayer would really be rather futile more or less vain, and basically useless. But we must never forget the one to whom that prayer is uttered. They go higher than the ceiling after all. That great God of heaven is the one listening. And his ear is the one who, in fact, upon hearing, is able to accomplish all things. There is nothing limited to him. In fact... Do we notice in Jeremiah 32, 17 that God's arm is powerful enough to do whatsoever His will directs? As we consider that character, didn't Jesus Himself say that in Matthew 19, 26? With God, all things are possible. Or as Luke states it, with God, nothing is impossible. That's the one to whom we're praying, and that makes prayer all the more exciting for we know that the one listening is not weak like you and I. He is not limited in his vision like you and I. He is able to accomplish all things that are in harmony with his will. And thus, as we think about the power then that is latent in prayer, 
May we notice a few other verses about that very statement. In James 5, verse 16, the very fact therein is stated, Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that you may be healed. What, James? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Peter made, it, made these statements and these words in 1 Peter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But his face is against them that do evil. God's ears are open to the prayers of the righteous. He wants to hear our prayer, and he wants to answer and to respond and to bring about the fruition of our will when it is in accord with his. That very text in James 5, in the next verse, verse 17, the inspired writer uses an Old Testament example to illustrate the power of prayer. The example is that of Elijah. In 1 Kings, we read in chapter 17 of that worthy and noble prophet named Elijah. He lived in an age and in a time when circumstances were not all that favorable for the people of God. Ahab and Jezebel ruled on the throne, and wicked and idolatrous to the core they were. However, Elijah was a bold and courageous servant of God, and he nonetheless preached the truth. In chapter 17 of that book, we read that Elijah prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And in James 5.17, in an inspired New Testament commentary, it sure enough did not rain for 42 months. We can see the power and wonder then of three and a half years without rain because a righteous man prayed that it might not rain. And then following that, Elijah prayed that it would rain, and it did rain. We make a grave mistake when we then think that our prayers are vain or that they are not powerful, for they are. And these texts in the Scriptures help us remember and to recollect that very fact. We've seen then that prayer is important and we must not forsake it. We've seen that prayer is urgent and again we must not forsake it. We've lastly observed the fact that prayer is also something that is greatly powerful and that gives us all the more encouragement to pray. That does leave us with one more observation. The fact that we, like Jesus, might do well to seek those circumstances and those positions that are more favorable to prayer. Let us remember that the one to whom we pray is not like our brother or is not like a good friend. You and I speak to a friend, perhaps in a trivial or light way, but as we remember that it is God to whom we pray and it is in prayer that we speak to Him, Prayer then should be done in a reverent way and it should be done in a way that is respectful of his greatness and respectful of the position that he occupies. Notice that Jesus went out to a solitary place. He wanted to find a position and a location where the interruptions and the distractions would be minimized. Had he stayed in town or had he stayed nearby, we already noted in verse 37 that all men were seeking him. He likely would have been interrupted to the point where it would have been very, very difficult, if possible at all, to pray in a time of pouring out heart and concentration and focus to the God of heaven. That helps us remember that in our prayers we too should utilize focus and concentration and pray pouring out our feelings and our earnest petitions to God, thanking Him as well for all His blessings toward us. 
We then should give some thought to when we can pray in a way that would have lesser interruptions or fewer distractions. Jesus rose up early to do that in his life. On this occasion, that may well be a workable solution for you and me. Quite often, once the children rise in the morning, then it's not easy to find a quiet time to spend a few moments in prayer. Maybe like Jesus, we could do that better a few moments before they rise. Maybe we would do better when we think about prayer in the workplace when everyone else has gone to lunch. Maybe those few minutes when they're at lunch, we could spend just a few moments praying to our Heavenly Father and how lifting and uplifting that would be for the remainder of the work day. Maybe while they're all at break would be a good time for us to spend a moment in prayer. Perhaps in the afternoon after the day of work, when we first get in our car, but before we start it up and rush off to the next activity, a brief moment in prayer. That might be a wonderful time when it's quiet and peaceable and tranquil, and we can appreciate the focus and the concentration on the great God that has seen us through another work day. We each can seek those best times in our life when a concentrated prayer may not only be the most beneficial thing for us at the moment, but it may lead to greatness through the rest of that day. Prayer is a wonderful thing. May we never forsake that wonderful privilege. It is a privilege vouchsafed to those who are the Lord's. In Ephesians 1 verse 3, the inspired writer there noted, All spiritual blessings are found in Christ. And thus, when we pray to God through Him, we realize the aid that can be ours when we pray in accordance to God's will. And when we find those solitary places, and when we find those quiet times to pray to God, whether that be early in the morning, whether it be some appropriate time during the day, or perhaps in the evening before we close our eyelids in an evening of sleep, we can be thankful that we have that attitude of prayer and thankful that God is there to hear and to respond and to answer. But may we realize that as we've looked at these tonight, let us summarize our lesson and appreciate the vitality and the wonder that's associated with it. These texts call us to realize this. Life indeed can be busy, it can be full, it can be chaotic and frenetic, but we must not allow Satan to ease prayer out of our life. In fact, we need the strength of God to help us. We need His direction and His wisdom, and we thus should go to Him in prayer, thanking and petitioning Him for those needs in our life. We've noted that Jesus had a busy life too, but He did not forsake prayer. May we then see again that prayer, as we've studied tonight, is important, it is urgent, it is powerful, and we should seek those situations in our day in which we too can offer a quiet and concentrated prayer to God, knowing that it will be greatly beneficial to us. Those models for prayer we find in the Bible challenge us ever to know that Jesus taught His disciples to pray. Can we not look at His examples and see good patterns for us to use in our prayer? Notice that model prayer of Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That prayer is, isn't lengthy. Our prayers to God need not encompass large amounts of time. 
but in concentrated fashion when we truly are very willing and mindful of that which we pray, that prayer is a meaningful prayer. Notice that Jesus honored and hallowed the name of God. We should do that too. Notice that he beseeched God for the daily blessings and thanked him for the food that he enjoyed. He also prayed that he would not be led into temptation. He also observed the fact that in that prayer, he prayed that God's will would be done in earth just as certainly as it's done in heaven. If that's the thought of our mind, we would then get excited about those times we can go to God in prayer and ask and pray and beseech that His will be accomplished in our life and in the lives of others just as certainly as His will is accomplished in heaven. That makes prayer exciting, doesn't it? With those thoughts tonight, and as we conclude our lesson, are you a Christian? Are you one who is such that your prayers are reverberating in the halls of heaven? Do they rise and ascend to God because you respond to Him in faith? If you have not done that in your life, become a Christian tonight. Jesus gave His life on that old rugged cross about 20 centuries ago now that you could not only be a Christian, but therein entertain the hope of an eternal home in heaven. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as the Son of God. And be immersed in water, baptized in order for your sins to be forgiven. When you do that, you will rise to walk a new creature in Christ. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. You will literally become a new creature and how wonderful it will feel. The burdens off your shoulders will be lifted. He will be there as a constant aid and guide beside you and with you through life. If you have known the grandeur and majesty of that, but you have allowed Satan too much control in your life, you've allowed him to inch prayer directly out of it, Paul still said, Give no place to the devil. Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27. If you need to come back to God tonight, we could, as brethren, pray on your behalf, and we'd be honored to do that. If either of these things is a need of your life, Think about the excitement of prayer and make it a real and vibrant part of your life. Come to Him tonight in a public way if that's a need in your life, even at this moment while together we stand and while we sing.